We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly interview show where top chess players, authors, content creators, and accomplished amateurs discuss their careers and share stories and chess improvement tips. Perpetual Chess is a part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network, and we'd like to give special thanks to our presenting chess education sponsor, Chessable.com. For more information about the show, you can go to PerpetualChessPod.com. But without further ado, let's get to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. Happy New Year once again. We are joined by a return guest. He is a top Swiss player. He was the youngest ever Swiss grandmaster at the time he became grandmaster and a winner of many Swiss national titles. He has a popular and insightful blog called Next Level Chess, where he shares chess improvement advice, book recommendations, life recommendations, um, time management tips, stuff like that. I I find it uh, very insightful, as we discussed in December of 2021. And our guest has recently released his first chess course. We actually discussed its planning in our prior interview, which holds up well, I must say, episode 248. But the course is called Next Level Training, Conquer the Chess Information Chaos. And it hits on a lot of themes that come up a lot in this podcast. Um, I uh, I just completed the course last night, so I am primed to discuss it as well as a general catch up. But first, let's welcome Grandmaster Noel Studer back to the show. Welcome, Noel. Thanks for having me. Nice to be here. 
Yeah, welcome back and uh, and happy new year and congrats on the publication of the course. Yeah, thank you so much. Huh? Uh, good way to finish uh, last year. Yeah, and I know you've had some health issues as we will revisit. Um, so I'm sure it feels all, all the better to start to lo- to move forward from that and uh, proceed with uh, with this course. Now, we'll get to the course shortly, Noel, but I actually wanted to jump into a fantastic Patreon question. Uh, supporters of Perpetual Chess are able to send in questions for the guest. Uh, and this one is from Alex Friedman, who regular listeners may remember Alex has sent in a lot of questions for a while, and he's been a little quiet lately. Shout out to Alex, and this question may explain why, and I think it's it's a very relatable question. So without further ado, here's what Alex wrote. He wrote, hi, no- hi, Noel, I've been trying to improve a chess for two years. I've tried different approaches, lots of tactics, focusing on end games, game collections, analyzing my games, and just playing. While I acquire knowledge and learn patterns, my rating and apparently my skill painfully stay at the same level. As an adult, should I just accept that chess improvement is not for me and try to focus on the interesting, fun parts of chess without trying to improve? Uh, End of question. So take it away, Noel. Yeah, so this last phrase really breaks my heart. eh? (laughs) It's uh, um, Well, to be short, no, not at all. If you want to improve, you can improve. It's uh, something adults can do. Many adults have shown it. And um, actually, I I wrote an article about a student of mine that was, I think, 72 years old at the time where we worked together. And in this time span of one and a half years, he won about 130 points. Uh, that was classical OTB uh, rating points. So that should show you that it is possible. So that's uh, that's the good news. And so what would you advise? I mean, I know... I'm going to uh, give away some something I'm going to one of the many things I flagged from your course, but you mentioned that plateaus are normal. But um, how do you know it's not a plateau and not a permanent peak? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I think one sort of exercise you can do already is, for example, if you I don't know if uh, if uh, he plays o- over the board chess or just uh, online chess, but let's say for for both of them, actually, you can just think like, wouldn't you play better if you slept better, ate better, uh, you know, would be able to focus fully and in the freshest state of mind. I think that already wins you quite some rating. So just that apart, but also the chess can get better. And I think the biggest problem probably for most improvers out there is that the skills are not taking up with the learning, right? It's a lot of learning. You learn new things, but applying them in the game is not as easy. So I would really recommend as many uh, training sessions that are close to the game. So that means, you know, solving uh, many puzzles, writing down the solutions. Uh, you you will have seen that in the course. I repeat that all the time. Like you have to write down what you think during a training and then trying to test you as much as possible. And then you will be able um, at some point to take what you know into the games and show it uh, during a real game as well. Okay. And in, I mean, I know you work with some students and, and interact with them a lot uh, as they comment and email you. Uh, through your blog, is there like one common pitfall you see? I mean, you mentioned like sort of lifestyle stuff like sleeping and I'm sure nutrition plays into it and uh, um, focus, stuff like that. But is there any one thing that you're seeing when where people are stuck? Yeah, I would say mostly it comes just down to being able to follow a quite simple training plan and not overthinking it, but doing the the intense chest workout, 
like not the listening to videos or reading some things where somebody gives you information, but really using your own brain, trying to test yourself as much as possible. And then, then you will be able to apply what you learned also in a game, because that's what uh, you need to show during a game, right? You just need to see a position and be able to make the best move. So the more you have that in a training, the better it is in general. So deliberate practice. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Well, Noel, if you don't mind indulging me, I have my own answer to Alex's question because it also resonated with me. Um, I, regular listeners will know I, my reading peaked at age 18 as a USCF master, but it's basically flatlined from there. And there have been periods, well, not even flatline, and there have been periods from there where I've worked hard at chess and periods where I haven't. And what struck me in thinking about Alex's question, I know that you're a fan of uh, Tim Ferriss's uh, books and uh, his podcast, Noel. Um, one thing that one bit of advice that he gave at some point that resonated with me, um, actually, it had to do with sort of starting new projects, not not chess or even improvement related per se. But he, you know, he's obviously a very successful guy, so has a lot of opportunities come his way. So he said whenever he's considering a new project, he thinks about it in terms of like, how can if if this doesn't go the way I want, if this doesn't get the desired outcome, is there a way that I would still win from this? Um so, for example, I've been trying to write a book forever, um, and I finally just decided to do it because, you know, whether people read it or not, um, I will have, I will now be an author, you know, for better or for worse. Um, and in chess, that's sort of how I approach uh, chess study. Now, obviously, I've mentioned many times on the pod, I don't study chess. I don't uh, put in the hours that especially some of my adult improver guests do. I do work on my chess every day, but... I try to put in a time where if it ends up that I never get better at chess again, I'm not going to be looking back on my deathbed saying, why did I study chess four hours a day for, you know, through my 40s, 50s, 60s, while my kids were growing up, you know, um, while, while I had family responsibilities, while I had other interests. So to me, it, one other bit of advice just from my perspective is if you're stuck it is okay just to do fun things. Um, and it is okay to just study an amount that's probably good for your brain health over the course of your life. Um, and that if you get better at chess, that will feel good. But if you don't, it won't be like this colossal waste of time. It will have been a, um, <clears throat> excuse me, a, a moderate, I, I, again, an amount where I wouldn't even consider it a waste of time. If I'm doing 45 minutes of hard work on something a day, and I generally find it hard to concentrate uh, in this information age, then to me, that's already a win. But if I'm spending four hours, then um, then it may not necessarily be a win because of the opportunity cost. So anyway, long-winded answer, but that's my overall philosophy. I'd love to hear your reaction to it, Noel. No, I love that. I think the, the most important thing is that you don't mix two things. Let's say you you in your heart, you would like to get better, but you're not ready to spend the hard training time, right? You just read some documentary books about chess and you enjoy it, but in your heart, you would like to get better and you have the expectation to get better. So I think uh, enjoying is amazing and you don't have to get better. But when you say, I want to increase my rating, you should try to do also what most likely increases your rating, right? So just to be able to say, okay, what do I want? And it's no shame at all to just say, I want to enjoy chess. I don't want to solve puzzles. I, I, I don't want to be one hour in my room alone 
solving these hard positions, but then probably also not expecting too high results um, out of your chess study, let's say. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. And would you say that someone, say they're age age 40 and they're spending 30 minutes a day of deliberate practice, do you think that that's conceivably enough uh, to make to make decent progress? I do believe. I mean, it's always the question, right? What is decent progress? So people write me in their 40s and they want to be grandmasters. And I'm like, mm, that that's tough. I mean, yeah. maybe someone could do it, but then you have to have unlimited money, um, basically not wanting to spend time with anyone you love and just spending the next 10 years in your life just for chess. I don't know if that's a smart decision, honestly. I wouldn't take that, right? So it always depends what you want, but to to increase your skills and to have better results, 30 minutes a day is enough. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. And, you know, obviously we I, I managed to talk to a lot of people with um, with pretty big um, accomplishments in terms of especially, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, people like yourself know grandmasters with many tournament titles and stuff like that. But in the improver space, I managed, the people I talk to are often, um, the outliers. I, I do just want to remind people that it's, as you say, and as as we'll get to, plateaus are the norm. Um, and if you just start to look through people's rating graphs, like on the USCF, if you just start searching random people, I mean, whatever the reason is, most people peak, um, as the science says, like, you know, in their early 30s. Uh, and you, so it's so it's not impossible to make a big jump after that point. Um, and especially if you're new to the game, you can make significant progress as you sort of um, gather the low-hanging fruit. But you, if you're trying to achieve like a, you know, many hundred point rating gain uh, past that age, it again, not to say it's impossible, but you do have to know that um, you're swimming upstream and you would be the uh, exception to to the rule if you if you do it. Absolutely. And only reaching this rating gain will not make the whole study time enjoyable if you didn't like it, right? I think there comes That's a in great point. Yeah. what you said and what Tim Ferriss says. It's like, um, even for me, like when many grandmasters actually, not only I, but when you hit the grandmaster title, you, you can fall into kind of a, you know, bad mental space because you're like, I invested all this time just for this title. And I feel the exactly same like before, like no, nothing has changed. My, my problems didn't go away. So if you right. just think that achieving X, Y amount of rating will make you happy, that's that's not the, the case. But we humans like to improve. So if you don't have like specific goals, but you just want to get better, that's possible even at a certain age still. Um, but yeah, it shouldn't be the only thing driving you to put in the hours. Yeah. Okay. Um, excellent advice. And and on that note, no, I do want to get into your course. Um, uh, so... Let's well. Let's start with you giving an overview. Again, we discussed it uh, a bit last year conceptually. I was um, struck by now having viewed the whole thing. Um, I was struck by how similar what we discussed last year, uh, two thousand twenty-one. Um, how how closely it adhered to what you described. But what's your overall vision for the course? Who's the target audience? Uh, let's let's have you explain before I give a few of my reactions. Yeah, okay, so let's start with the target audience. It's from beginner to 2,000 federated player. That's where the real target audience is. I have players that are stronger than that as well, that profit from it, but that's where um, all the recommendations will be at as well. And the idea of the course is to really 
maximize what you get out of every minute that you spend on chess training. Um, that means that first I get you through some general ideas of study, um, how you can improve your focus, create some good habits. What are the dangers in chess study? Um, then I go through how chess study works in my opinion. There's a difference between improving and learning, for example. Um, and then I go through all the different um, sections of chess that you could study, tactics, positional chess, endgame, all the openings. And then I show how you should study them. And at the end, we make a training plan for you where you learn how to make a real training plan that you can stick to that is simple uh, by choosing some recommended resources. And then you should be ready to start training effectively and without losing track, without being overwhelmed of 50 new courses and which one should I study. Okay. Yeah, I'd say that that's a that's a good description, and uh, I agree. Up to two thousand um, is is reasonable advice. Um, I, I would say, but especially if you're like say below sixteen hundred, and as you as you say in the title, like feeling a bit overwhelmed by the the morass of information available um, uh, in about sort of chess improvement. Generally, one observation I would share for uh, listeners interested is. I obviously I've watched my share of chess courses over the years. There's uh, a surprisingly little amount of actual chess in it. Like I would say it's probably 25% where there's a chess board on the, um, on the screen. Um, and to me, that's not a detriment. I mean, I have a audio only chess podcast, so I enjoy sort of the philosophy of chess improvement and you do a great job distilling your advice. But that is one thing I would, I would, uh, recommend is a lot of it is about sort of how to approach things and, uh, which resources to check out. Um, and if you read Noel's blog, which everyone should, I mean, the blog is free and extremely insightful. Um, as as we'll we'll revisit, Noel's had some health problems, so he hasn't been writing as many new posts. But he often, even when he's not up for writing a new weekly post, links to an old one, and the old posts are uh, pretty evergreen and and insightful as well. Um, so before we get into the content, um, excuse me, the content of the course. Um, I'm just curious, Noel, what your, you know, this is a course about like how to manage your life, how to manage your time. How did you manage the time of making this course? Yeah, that was, that was tough actually, because uh, with this um, health issue with the traumatic brain injury, I, I actually don't have a, a lot of time uh, at my disposal. That's also why I had to postpone the course, why we talked already last time about the course and I couldn't, you know, publish it at the timing I wanted. Um, so I really had to focus also there, like, what is the most important thing um, that I need to get done today? And, and then I had maybe two hours, three hours um, to do that. And so I think I got very good at really distilling, like, what is essential and then what could be done but doesn't need to be done. There are so many things, for example, marketing, obviously. There's so many things that additionally I can still do to bring this to more people. Um, but I just said, okay, I just have to focus now on making videos, for example. And when I did videos, there was nothing else. Like, that's why I stopped uh, writing articles. I basically stopped everything else. I was just, this week is just recording videos. That's it. So I try to be very clear what I want to achieve in a certain week and then focus on this one thing. Yeah. And I was... um in addition to being impressed with the content as someone who's done like the bare minimum of videos in terms of like occasional video podcasts and 
and uh, w- you know one-off uh, YouTube videos, um, the editing is very clean. Was that um, were you mostly recording in one take? Uh, this is just kind of inside, you know, insider info. But I was just curious, as a fellow content creator, what your approach was to the editing and presentation. This is one hundred percent one take. There is no single video wow, that is impressive. edited in there. Yeah. And you had the bullet points ready to go that you show on the screen, I assume? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I re-recorded some videos, but but there was no editing in the videos that you see in the course. So if, okay. wow, if I redid a video, then it was okay. One video, I think, is 20 minutes. It's the longest. This one, if after 15 minutes I said something I didn't like, I was just going back, do it again. Okay, cool. All right. Well, we'll get to the actual chess content next. Now, no, I, I would like a pat on the back because you mentioned in the course that only 13% of people uh, finish. Is it teachable courses? Is teachable the platform you used? Yeah, I think it's just general online courses. This uh, the information I found is very, yeah, very surprising. But yeah, you are the elite. So I did 13%. watch at 1.5 speed as like an avid podcast listener, but but I, I completed it. I, I want my diploma. <laughs> <laughs> I should maybe um, I could add this, you know, just some printable diploma. You are elite yeah, 13%. That uh, would that would actually be cool. Yeah? Or an NFT, or if those are still a thing. Uh. <laughs> I think then people think I'm a scammer. I, I prefer not right, to do that's that. True. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, we're going to get to a few of what I consider to be the highlight, the points that really struck me uh, from Noel's course. But first, we're going to take a break and hear from our sponsors. Perpetual Chess is proud, as always, to be brought to you in part by Chessable.com. Chessable, of course, is known for their Move Trainer technology, which utilizes spaced repetition to help you remember tactical patterns and opening sequences. They have a huge library of courses for whatever aspect of your game you want to work on. Some of their new courses include a course on the Tarash defense to D4, which is a good choice if you're looking for a dynamic opening against one D4. It's by Super Grandmaster Jordan Von Forrest. Speaking of Super Grandmaster, former world champion and legendary trainer Rustam Kazimjanov has a course out on the C3 Sicilian. If you're newer to chess, be sure to check out Friend of the Pod. I am Andres Toth's 1D4 for beginners. And of course, they've got tactics courses too. They have stuff you can check out for free. So if you have not already, make sure you go to chessable.com and keep an eye on their ever-growing supply of quality chess courses. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And we are back. And as we said, we're not going to spoil all of uh, the content from Noel's course, but I did highlight five bullet points that struck me. The first one, we might want to keep brief or we could even pass because we did already discuss it, but it's just so important that I'll mention it once more. And no, you can let me know if you have a reaction, but it's that plateaus are normal, um, something that you highlight yourself early in the course. Uh, Anything to add on that before we get to uh, some fresh territory? Uh, yeah, just that um, it happens to everyone, and the, the important thing is to think long term and not short term. I think that's that's the key. Like when you're just tomorrow, I want to have fifty points more. It's tough, but when you think about I want to increase my knowledge and then my skills, so I give better, show better chess. 
then at some point the rating will also fall. Okay, yeah, G- uh, good advice, and and we'll leave that there. Uh, this was one that I've not heard uh, given that often. So, um, in your section on calculating, working on calculation, how you approach solving puzzles, you mentioned that after doing a puzzle or calculating, you should always uh, stop and give an evaluation, um, you know, to yourself, and actually, you you as like. People like Grandmaster Yakabagard have advised, recommend writing down your solutions. But I hadn't heard it suggested to write down an evaluation anytime you're solving a puzzle. Um, so where did that idea come to you from, Noel? Um, I think it mainly came also from my last coach, uh, Grandmaster Marcus Rager, um, because I was sometimes taking a bit uh, strange choices. You know, I saw the things, but then I ended up playing a move that actually was if I sit at home and I'm training, I think, well, that's worse than what I another one that I saw. So it's somehow easier to compare um, when you just evaluate something than when you just go with emotions. So that just helps me, help me personally to compare objectively what I just calculated and not like, ah, oh, this move was nicer, that's why I want to do it. Or you sometimes end up taking some very weird emotional decisions and if you just get the habit of having evaluation at the end of a line, like you're saying, okay, this move, bum, bum, bum. And then I don't think you should say like 0.5 better for white. You should think like a human, like this is much better with very good winning chances, for example. And then you see another one and then you say, well, this is this might be winning, but there is also a chance that I screw this up. And then you can think a little bit also, I know that you played also poker, right? A little bit more... Mm-hmm poker wise like will i win this hand or not will i win this game or not and not is this 0.6 or 0.5 something like that okay yeah yeah that is good advice and was it hard for you to get into the habit of doing that uh when grandmaster rager suggested it to you yeah i mean during the game it's always uh much harder right so if i told you this next tournament now you just go and you evaluate every line during you know calculating it will be nearly impossible, I would say. So what you really need to do is you need to apply it in training and really do it every single time. And at some point it gets normal for you. So I'm really a big believer in getting the habits in training. And that's why sometimes I'm very strict on don't do this or only solve puzzles if you really write down the solution because you will only have the habit if you really do it all the time, right? If you just do it 20 times, ah, I'm I'm not feeling today, right? Then during the game, you will probably also not feel like and you'll end up just at the same point again. Yeah, and of course, uh, we got to give a shout out to Friends of the Pod. I know you're friendly with uh, FM Nate Solon and uh, Grandmaster Eugene Perlstein. Uh, if you do want to work on your evaluation skills, evaluate like a GM is a uh, good resource to do that with. Um, Okay, next bullet point. I was quite quite floored by this one, Noel. Um, you only read one Endgame book in your whole life, and here you are, a grandmaster, a Swiss champion. Um, so how did that happen? <laughs> well, actually, you know, I can go way back. I hated reading anything when I was young. Just when I was in school, I remember my parents always had to do, like, reading lists, and... They had to basically force me or I lost money if I didn't read or I got something if I read 20 days in a row. But it was really tough making me read. So 
I nearly didn't read any chess book or probably not didn't read any chess book from cover to cover until I was I am with 2450 something like this and I just you know watched in a little bit of them but then when I hit my real big plateau when trying to be a GM I started reading books and I read the the Dvoretsky's Endgame Manual I did go through that and it was very useful but I believe that in the end games you don't need have or there is a limited amount of theoretical end games you need to know right so you don't need to have from seven different books some things because there are already books out there where great coaches were thinking like what do they need and then they selected it for you so i think especially in end games it's really like the value of just having a book over just trying to learn some random theory is just insane Okay, yeah, and I loved your little anecdote about uh, Grandmaster Young Phenom Nihal Saren saying, "Are they joking?" When when asked about reading a book, what was did you? How did you hear that story? No, I was sitting with him. Uh, we were playing Beal, um, uh, and we were sitting. Usually, we have like every uh, rest day there is some special activity with all the players. So we were sitting in a car and we were discussing a little bit about chess, and we were talking about. And he just said, "Yeah, basically." I'm playing, you know, a lot of blades and so on. Um, and and then we came to this point of reading books and he was really like puzzled. He was like, yeah, but anyway, it's just a joke, right? I was like, well, <laughs> I think people still read books. He was like, oh, okay, that's interesting. Yeah? So <laughs> it was really fun for me to see that for him, it's a completely new world. <laughs> yeah, and Grandmaster uh, Narayanian, who has worked with uh, Nihal, and I recently interviewed and worked with Aragasi as well, said the same thing about Aragasi. So uh, again, we spend all this time discussing chess books, um, but... Uh, there's many many ways to get better at chess, especially in the uh, in the digital age. Um, which, before we get back to the bullet points, uh, Noel, since you weren't reading chess books, obviously you competed a fair amount. Um, but what would you say was sort of the primary contributor to to your chess growth? I mean, like, when I was younger, I was very spoiled because I had very good coaches already. Um, I had Arthur Yusupov from when I was like twelve. So I was yeah, sometimes forced to do the right thing, even if I didn't have the right habits. And then when right. I turned professional, I had to like redo everything because I didn't have the habits and I changed my coaches. So I just needed to redo it for myself. But I was still forced to solve puzzles. I was still forced to, you know, uh, go to training camps where we had to play out difficult positions. So I think I did the right things, just not knowing it myself but being extremely lazy if i had the choice but it helped that sometimes i got forced doing the right thing so uh, studying you know uh, important things or that the coach comes with a lesson on strategy and you're like oh that, that's interesting um but when i was left on my own i usually just either played through games which is nice but probably not the most effective or for sure not the most effective uh, chess study or I was just uh, extremely lazy up to some point. And do you feel like you were putting in a lot of hours? Um, like, I'm sure you played a ton. You had weekly lessons. But like with, with your spare time, were you playing Blitz online? Were you studying on your own independently every day? Or was it more like just uh, what was put in front of you? Yeah, I played a lot when I was... A lot of OTB games simply when I was young. And I didn't... St- 
spent that much time on chess um, when I was in high school. I had some, you know, periods where I wasn't that motivated and then other periods where I spent a little bit more, but I certainly didn't spend like more than two hours a day, I think, um, uh, on my own on chess. So having been going to a sports high school where I actually added one year, I sometimes felt it was a little bit a waste because I could have done the same amount. I was basically doing other things with my free time while my, you know, swimming friends were training 30 hours a week or something. And right. <laughs> I was like, okay, I'm here enjoying uh, life a little bit. But funnily enough, then when I decided myself that I want to become a pro, then I started to put a lot of hours in. Okay. Yeah. And you talk more about that in our prior interview, as well as about what you learned from each of your coaches. So um, if our listeners wanting more about Yusupov, I would uh, point them towards that interview again. Now, no, one more follow up before we get back to the bullet list. Um, so you mentioned it, reading was kind of a chore when you were a kid, but now, you know, as a regular consumer of your content, obviously you're an avid reader, uh, especially I would say, uh, I would venture in the non-chess space. Um, so when did that sort of uh, switch flip for you? Um, I remember I had, uh, I actually planned on uh, studying uh, in university in America. Uh, I wanted to get a scholarship for chess and I had to, I wanted to practice my English. So I started reading, uh, I don't know if you know these Chuck Reacher books. Uh, say it again. Chuck Reacher. Thriller. Oh, from yeah, yeah. Lee Child. yeah. Lee Child. Yeah. So, Legendary. Yeah. So I read all of them now and uh, I just went through them and I started like, ah, when I choose my own books, I actually enjoy doing it. Right. It was just being forced to read some school stuff. I wasn't really happy or somebody told me you need to study this chess book. I was like, ah, but then I started just trying to, you know, enjoy reading and and then I slowly got into it. I think starting self-help was as for most Tony Robbins. And then I started knowing of this Tim Ferriss podcast. And then basically what I did and what I still do today is just listening to podcasts of Tim Ferriss. And if I find a, a person interesting, I just read their books. And then from mm -hmm. reading their books, they quote other people. And then you just go down a rabbit hole and, and you end up reading, I don't know, 20 books a year or something, something along that lines. And you are, are you a Kindle guy, a book, book guy, audio book? What's your preferred format? I love to have physical books, but we have now two full shelves at home of like one full shelf of chess books, which of which most I actually haven't read, but I have them. Um, but uh, then I have normal books. Um, and my girlfriend tells me I shouldn't, you know, to buy too many physical ones so i yeah that's enough <laughs> i do like again i have this one third rule in in my course and i would say yeah. i do it the same with books like one third is audible one third is kindle and one third is okay i managed to find an excuse to buy a book and, and read it like that excellent all right and we and we might get back to uh to book recommendations later but um let's move it forward to the next bullet point uh, this one from your course, when analyzing classical games, which you go through in great detail, um, how how you approach that, you say use words to describe your feelings, focus on what went wrong in your thought process, rather than sort of variations. Um, so I think that's really potentially helpful for people. So I'd love to hear you expound on that. Noel. Yeah, this is something I realized also for myself first that when let's say you just uh, go home after a game and I have this two-step process, right? One is 
after the game immediately that you usually write down these uh, thoughts and emotions and and some key lines only. And then if you don't do that, let's say two weeks later, you, you put up the game and you think, okay, let's go through it. It's not that easy to remember what exactly you calculated. Why did I make this move? Now it looks so much more logical to make that other move. And you just don't have the kind of information. It's nearly like um, you only look at the game from somebody else because all the decision-making is gone. And and the most interesting to me now, especially as a coach, is like, why did you make this decision, right? I can tell you, yeah, this is a bad pawn structure. You shouldn't have captured with that pawn. But the more interesting is why did you think that this was a good choice or were you scared of the other one or was there some tactics that you were scared of? And then we can work in training or you can work in training to um, yeah, to make that better, right? You need to understand the, where the mistake comes from to be able to not do it anymore in the future. I think that's the, the most important thing. Yeah, it really resonated with me when you showed the game where you'd lost a few games in a row preceding it. And the in presenting the game and in uh, sharing how you came to a decisions in what was a pretty sharp tactical game, um, so much of it was governed by sort of the overarching emotion of like, I don't want to lose again. Like, you know, there, there's been too many losses in a row already. And um, I find that extremely relatable, but I think some people might be surprised that even at the grandmaster level, that can sort of uh, take um, primacy in, in your thinking. Oh, absolutely. More than you think. Or, I mean, yeah, for me at least. I don't know for, for others, but I know of some other GMs that also have problems with that. And I think that's just, yeah, everyone, everyone has a hard time playing a very difficult tactical game after several losses in a row. There are people that can handle it better and worse, but I think there's nearly no one in the world that is like, yeah, okay, I just lost five in a row. Now let's just sacrifice my piece. I'll just win. You know, I trust myself. So I think there, yeah, you have a lot of bad thoughts. And in this game specifically, I had very few lines that I calculated. It was more like, here I sacrifice a piece. I don't want to sacrifice a piece. Can I please find something else? <laughs> so, so yeah, it's just uh, it's just also about being honest with yourself, I think, and also your coach if you have a coach, right? So because it is something completely different if I show this game to my coach and I don't tell them that I had these thoughts, they will just say, yeah, why can't you calculate this? Why can't you calculate this? But in fact, it wasn't about calculation. It was just about my fear of, of losing again. And is that something that, that you try to like improve on going forward? Like what advice would you give for some, say you say your coach told you, uh, no, you need to be more concrete. Like, you know, emotions are, you can't avoid them, but you need to evaluate the sacrifice on its merits. Like, did, did you get feedback like that based on that? Or is it such a human reaction that your coaches were like, no, I totally understand. Well, I also had some feedbacks from my coaches, but I also worked with a sports psychologist where these things were more, you know, the, the theme of discussion. Like, how can I manage to really focus on the process? Something I also try to teach my students or via the blog um, how that you should focus on the process and not on the result of a game. Um, but then putting that into action when you lose three times in a row is obviously something more difficult. Like it's, it's again, like, yeah, you can read about or you can learn about some pawn structures, but then going to the game and 
applying it is much harder than just having heard of it and saying, yeah, okay, double pawns, I shouldn't get double pawns, right? So it's it's the the knowing what I should do, but then also getting the skills of doing it during a tournament that needs just time. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's um, an endless challenge, but again, somewhat reassuring that uh, even at your level, <laughs> it's still it's still there. Um, okay, final bullet point I highlighted is, and this one really struck a chord with me, is the goal of calculation exercises is to be comfortable in complicated positions. Um, because that's something that, you know, speaking of emotions, I've noticed that's a weakness of my own game, uh, complicated positions. And uh, when I interviewed um, um, official brain correspondent of Perpetual Chess, Dr. Christopher Chabri, he highlighted that I think for for adult players, there can be like sort of a, a natural aversion to like fire on board type positions. Um, so I found that particularly insightful because even in a study routine, sometimes I avoid puzzles with complicated positions and it sounds like I need to stop doing that. Yeah, absolutely. I learned also a lot from, I think Ramesh is a great coach and he he is very good in that, like just putting his students in difficult spots during the training. And then he even says that he puts them in much harder spots during the training. And then you go to the game and you're like, oh, this is so easy. (laughs) It's just because I remember once we were in a training camp and he just uh, showed the uh, position um, on the screen. And then he said, everybody has the position. And then he switched off the screen. And then for, I think, 45 minutes, we're just talking about this position, calculating this position without ever seeing the board again. And I can tell you, I was a GM then, and I was struggling incredibly hard. Like every five to 10 minutes, somebody had to ask, sorry, but I don't have the position anymore. Could you please tell me what line are you calculating? And you just realize that those that did this before, right, didn't even matter too much how strong they were. But obviously Sam is extremely strong, Sam Shankland, but he was just used to some kind of hard work like that. He was much better than everybody else. Right. So if you're used to getting, you know, a little bit over your limits in training, then you can do the same in in the real game. I think the biggest problem with most chess improvers is that it's easier to make, you know, to watch some videos, to, you know, get information. So they do this way too much compared to really just sitting down, having a puzzle thinking what is the best move, writing it down, comparing it to the solution. Okay, I got this wrong. What can I do better next time? Let's do it again, right? So this work is really where you get the most improvement out, but it's also the hardest one. So, yeah. Yeah, great advice. And so where do you come down? Like, you know, I don't know if you want me to spoil the one third rule. You may have blogged about it. I've read all your blogs, but I didn't review them. But in your calculation time, like, is there space for easier exercises as well? Or do you think you should really focus on, as you say, the challenging, uh, more challenging puzzles? I think it's very important to um, do where your current state is. Let's say um, it's very important to get the basics right in tactics, especially. So if you've never, you know, gone through really all these um motives and all these checkmate patterns, you should do that, right? It's very hard to solve something if you don't have the pattern yet. But once you have the pattern, you should try to, you know, solve puzzles that are tough, but you can still solve them. I like between 60 and 80% 
of sol right solving rate, but it's a little bit different. My 60 to 80% is probably what people would think they have a hundred or they have, you know, a different amount because I say you're only right if you wrote down every single move and that was the solution. And if there was a counterplay option for your opponent and you didn't write that down, you were wrong. That wasn't the right puzzle, that was a wrong puzzle, even if you had the first move right. So for some okay. people that might be, well, I had everything right and I would say here was a mistake, here was a mistake, here was a mistake. Because the problem is if you start missing things in training, you might be lucky that you still chose the right move. But during the game, it doesn't have to be that that was the right move if you miss something, right? You can miss an easy tactic and still there is a counter tactic, but sometimes there is not and you just lose the game. So I think it's very important also to focus on really doing it well and not just, I found the first move, that's fine. I would have found it as well during the game. I would have just played it. So I think that's also okay. an important point. Yeah, that's great advice. And obviously, if you're listening and you're um, lower rated, like say maybe below 1200, you might not encounter the problem Noel's describing as often because the the puzzles might be a little bit cleaner. Like, if, for example, if you're doing like a mate in one or mate in, like not challenging, so there are super hard mate in twos, but let's say they're just um, regular run of the mill mate in twos. You you know you might not encounter that more often, but certainly as you as you move up the the chess ladder and start to do uh, more challenging puzzles, that's that's great advice. And yeah, I'm gonna you know as as I've said, my my calculation work. I'm not putting in huge hours, but I am gonna take this to heart and uh, make sure I I bring back some more challenging puzzles. Um, so one other thing I wanted to highlight from the course, and I'll just sort of in the in the spirit of uh, full disclosure for our audience is the cost of the course, the uh, the sticker price, the, the list price, I believe is $297. And um, I am concerned or I can understand that some some listeners might find that to be expensive. So what would you say to anyone who uh, who had that concern? Um, well, I mean, everybody can have their concerns. I think that you just get it and huge amount out of it and it was a lot of work it might only seem like oh it's i think around nine hours of of video but i think it's much harder i could have done this course in 30 hours very easily but in nine hours it's much harder but what do you get out of it is that you for for now on when you study the course for every day you will study chess better and you will also save money on things like for example chess space i don't think you need chess space you can just scratch that fully from your list if you know how to work with the tools that I recommend um, in the course. Uh, you will also stop, you know, there are people writing me like, I bought already 15 courses. And if I would have bought your course, I wouldn't have had to buy all these 15 courses, right? I might have uh, had to add one more. So I think you uh, you will also save on, on other courses as well. And you get that Discord group that is very important. We have a, a limited Discord group just for all the students in the course. And you're able to ask me questions whenever you have any problems with your chess study. And that's something uh, very valuable that people really appreciate. And people actually also help each other. And that's completely free for forever. So that's, uh, that's what you get with the course. So I think the whole bundle is just a huge value for uh, your chess for your improvement and hopefully also for your life like you can take things and study I don't know whatever uh, maybe high, in high school or if you're an adult chess improver you can use it in business maybe even so there are different things that you can use from the course not only for chess but for other things as well 
Yeah, uh, yeah, I liked that the the beginning of the course is not even uh, about chess per se. It's a how to study anything. Um, and I know you did a launch sale, and I know that you said in the launch sale, like, there's never going to be a lower price than this. But uh, have you thought about, like, will there be other sales for people who are interested? Um, I'm not a huge fan of, like, a lot of sales. So for the moment, I think that's it. Um, there might be some discounts, uh, but there won't be. The launch sale was 30%, so there won't be anything um that is 40% or more. That's just my promise to everyone buying early that they will have the best price that ever existed. Um, so yeah, but there is a 30-day money-back guarantee. So you can buy risk-free. And if you really think, oh, that was not at all worth my money, um, then you can just email me within these 30 days and you get your money back. So that's my offer uh, to everyone buying so that you can look at it and convince yourself that it's it's worth the price that it, that it is. Okay. All right. Well, again, I mean, I, as a content creator myself, I certainly um, feel that people um, people need to be paid for their work. And when you buy something like this, you're basically getting like the accumulated knowledge of, of a person. So I understand that it's out of, uh, likely out of some people's price range. Uh, but I also understand as a creator that, that it's, you know, you need, you need to be compensated for all of the time that you've put in, all of the books you've read, all of the presentation. I mean, as we said, we we discussed this a year ago. Um, you know, th- this has been long in the making, um, and I'm I'm glad to hear, as you mentioned on Twitter, that uh, that the feedback you've gotten so far has been uh, has been good. Um, so, Noel, I want to catch up on a couple other things, but we, first we need to take uh, one more break and hear from our sponsors. Perpetual Chess is brought to you in part by AimChess.com. AimChess has an algorithm that gathers your games from the major sites like Chess.com and LeeChess and gives you actionable intel based on the patterns it detects. It can be how you do with certain openings, what aspects of the game you excel at versus need work at. And guess what? AimChess has a new feature that you should check out right now, just in time for the new year. You can check out your year in review for 2022. You just enter your username and it gives you uh, how many hours you spent chess, how many games you played, how you did with various openings. Lots of fun facts uh, that the algorithm is able to gather. So be sure to check out AimChess.com if you decide to try out subscribing, use the code PERPETUAL30 to save 30%. You can also use the link in the show description to try out aimchess.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And we are back. And I've got a few topics I want to revisit. But one, Noel, um, let's let's uh, bring it back to books for a minute. Um, so again, you share, so you share a decent amount of chess recommendations, um, specific targeted ones for different ratings within the course. Um, but even beyond chess, I'm curious what books have really resonated with you, uh, especially since we last talked, since um, uh, December of uh, 2021, if anything comes to mind. Um, I read the, uh, Digital Minimalism, I think it is, by Carl Newport. 
mm-hmm. that's something that is really important to me. I still struggle to apply everything. So again, there it's not just reading it and then, okay, yeah, I'll just not use my phone anymore. But um, it is something that I try to remind myself because it just saves time, but not only time, but I feel that my brain is working better when I just don't overload it with all these, you know, social media and YouTube videos or whatever you can do all the time. Um, So that's one that stands out uh, for sure at the moment. Yeah, I read Deep Work by Cal Newport, which I think digital minimalism is kind of like a sequel to it. Mm. Um, have you? Are you familiar with uh, with Deep Work? I'm not familiar with Deep Work, but I have okay, it on I my mean, reading list. Yeah, it's a similar idea, but basically the idea is like the importance of doing doing difficult things, solving difficult problems, like you know, limiting your your inputs um, and concentrating, um, mm-hmm. which obviously sort of gets back to what we were discussing in terms of, uh, my chess calculation misadventures. Um, so yeah, it's funny how, uh, how no matter, no matter where you go, you can end up in the same place in terms of, uh, of, uh, what's, what's best for personal development or improvement at a particular endeavor. Um, speaking of which, uh, another thing you mentioned in your course is you've been working sort of with a beginner's mind on two activities of recent uh, tennis and poker. Uh, let's start with tennis. Is there any, like, what has the experience of picking up tennis been been like for you, No. Well, actually, I've played uh, as a kid already, but I never really had, you know, some structured lessons. Um, so I just know how to hold the racket. I know to how to hit the balls, but I don't really have the right um, technique. And that's actually a big problem because, Unlearning is much harder than learning it new. So I think actually it would have been better for me just to never have been playing tennis before and just starting right. it from start because you you get the feeling like I know how to do it because you can hit some balls, you can even make some nice winners or whatever. But at the end of it, you're just doing it wrong. So I need to um, unlearn it. And when I you know play also with friends that are better than me, I sometimes hear myself nearly talking. They're like, don't do too fast. Just do the basics. You should do the, the technique right. And only then you can increase the speed. I'm like, man, I'm telling this to my chess students all the time. But it's just so hard to when you're trying something, you just want to do what the others do. Right. When I was small, I always wanted to eat what my big brother ate. Didn't want to right. eat this baby food or whatever. And I feel it's the same. Like you want to hit the serve that is an ace even if you don't have the right technique, but you need to go back, start new. So it's nice to be in the shoes of those that learn from me and to sometimes realize, okay, I need really also need to be compassionate with my students because it isn't hard. It is not easy and it's hard and you have these pitfalls along the way. And I need to force myself into that. Okay. Let's be a student. Let's go to the basics and, and yeah, let's do it the right way. Yeah, totally, totally relatable. Um, and yeah, I've noticed that as well. And uh, what about poker? Like, what what have you learned from um, trying to learn? Like, what are your goals with poker and what has it taught you so far? Yeah, so poker, I just really enjoy several aspects of it. Like the mental part, I think sometimes can even be tougher than chess um, because you also have always, you know, this this money involved that you can win or lose. So it's even harder to focus on the process, in my opinion, when when you just see um, if you're out of a tournament or not. So I, I like this challenge to 
really try to just play the best to take the best decision, but not thinking about like, what if I win this tournament? What if I, whatever. So what if I'm out of this tournament, just think what is the best decision and then, and then go for that decision. That's something that I learned from poker even more than from chess, I would say. And I don't want to, you know, uh, make it a profession. I don't want to, uh, especially earn money with it, but I want to be a winning player, obviously. And that would come with making money then, but it's just, it's just a fun hobby. And I also realized that I like playing live much more than online. So I think I will just sporadically travel somewhere where there is a nice tournament, um, that is decent for my budget, you know, not overdo anything and, and just have fun playing poker and studying it from time to time. Okay. Sounds pretty uh, grounded, pretty reasonable. And one thing that that's interesting to me, I mean, I'm, you know, I played poker professionally for seven years, but it was in a different age um, where basically you could read books and, you know, certainly like interacting with, with other uh, professionals was a great way to sort of gather information and make best guesses, but there was no correct information. Whereas now with poker solvers, um, similar to chess engines, but probably less directed because, um, you know, I don't want to derail this too much, but basically like something can in chess, there's always a best move if you ask the engine, but in poker, uh, it might tell you a best move against sort of like the average player. But if you're playing someone with certain tendencies, um, the, the air quotes, best move might not be the best move against them. So I'm just curious, um, how, like, if you do try to learn from, say, you play a tournament, you had a hand, and you then want to learn from it, um, what is the approach these days? Like, or are you just having fun enough where, you don't, you don't, you know, it's not keeping you up at night? <laughs> well, it does keep me up at night. I'm a perfectionist at heart. So I, right. I really don't like thinking that I made a wrong decision somewhere along the line. Um, but... I actually started studying some courses in poker, just trying to, you know, learn from people that, that, that have done what I would like to be able to do. Um, the start was very easy. It was this masterclass of Daniel Negreanu, but it's more like general concepts. And then I got a more specific course um, that just, you know, basically all the basics of uh, which textures you have to bet big, bet small. What do you do with small stacks, big stacks? in tournaments, focused on tournament play simply. Um, and then when I have a hand, I know two, three poker professionals that I can contact for um, their opinion in general. I don't like to work too much with solvers myself because I feel I'm not at a level yet where I need this utter perfection, but I prefer more to have the feedback of somebody that is much stronger and just tells me their instincts of of the situation, right? Sometimes yeah. also when you work with machines, they just tell you this is the right thing, but they don't tell you like, is it obvious? Isn't it obvious? Was this a big mistake? Was it a small mistake? And I like to have this kind of interaction with somebody that just tells me, oh my God, that's just so horrible. You, that that just never does something for you. And you're thinking like, ah, okay. Or you're only getting called by better here and you start to think about it and it's like, okay, that was very obvious for this person. So that was probably a big mistake. Or when they say, yeah, I think you can do several things. And I'm like, okay, I think that's that's fine. That was depending on a read or uh, or the in-person in, in person, you know, decision just. 
Very interesting. I think there's a lot of echoes that like uh, chess, adult chess amateurs can can take from that. Um, you know, it's come up obviously on the podcast before that um, just an engine spitting a move at you if you don't understand it is that helpful and is not necessarily helpful, I should say. And another con- conclusion or observation that that comes to mind is like, Sometimes if you're trying to figure out what you should have done in a position, asking an engine maybe actually may not be as helpful as asking a stronger player. And you may not, if you're rated 1200, maybe you don't need to ask a grandmaster. Maybe you'll learn more from asking like a 1500 friend because they're sort of um, at the next level up, but they sort of understand your thought processes more than a grandmaster who can just sort of, um, you know, calculate perfectly or knows the pattern and like inherently from from previous work um and doesn't have to sort of explain their thought process or know that doesn't necessarily know the pitfalls so i it is interesting how like pursuit of knowledge in one field can can be applied to to different ones especially with games which of course is why uh there's so many lovers of uh multiple games myself included and it sounds like you as well um any other new hobbies besides uh chess and poker I mean, uh, tennis and uh, poker, no? Mm, for the, well, I like reading, you know, listening to podcasts, all the, the, the same things, actually, uh, spending time uh, with uh, with my girlfriend. All of these things I, I love, but nothing too much new. I just want to jump back shortly and say that you said what they can learn also for chess. And I think the most or one of the most important takeaways as well is like focus on the big mistakes. Right. We, yeah. we all make so many mistakes. And I, I see with other you know, people that start learning poker with me along that I think I advance much faster because I can leave small mistakes behind me. And I just focus on like that makes a huge difference. Right. Don't do that and already jump a level up. And in chess, I think it's the same. We do. If you just go through a whole game with your engine, like, it's just everything mistakes. But you need to be able to understand, OK, these two mistakes are the ones I need to work on. All the others are fine if I still do them. Like for, for some level, even if the engine shows plus one from a move to another, it might not be a mistake. It might just be a decent move and that's it. You don't need to work on that. But if you change from completely winning to completely losing, that's where you need to work on. And for poker, for me, it's the same. Like somewhere, as I said, where a friend says like, that was just absurd, stupid decision. I'm like, okay, that was probably something emotional that I need to work on or something I just completely didn't understand in that situation. And then I focus on this one and I leave the rest aside for the moment. Wow. Uh, yeah, great insight and definitely like a theme that sort of uh, reverberates throughout your your course. Now, I got to ask, uh, following up on our earlier conversation, did you finish both of the poker courses that you mentioned, the Negriano one and uh and the second one? That's a good question. I actually finished 50% of them. So I'm still better than 13%, but I will take this as a, you know, uh, as a kick in my ass to, to do what I, what I say uh, my students to do and to finish the second one as well. <laughs> so you finished the Negriano one, but not the second yes, one? Exactly. I, I, you know, stopped playing chess and I allowed myself to learn poker and I was in holidays and I just went through the whole course very quickly. Um, still try to write down things, but I was just very fascinated by by poker in general. Just it was easy to go through. And the other one is more technical. I would say it's uh, more similar to my course where he says, now this is the theory of how you should do it. Go play some poker 
and repeat and take a hand and analyze it and talk with somebody about it. And when you are doing it well, okay, now you can go post-flop, right? Just focus on pre-flop at the beginning and don't think about, you know, these amazing river decisions, but just focus on doing the right things pre-flop and then you continue. And so you build up. So it takes also more time and it's, it's harder in a way, but it really, you know, gives also something back in, in skills and knowledge. Okay. Yeah. I have to admit, as I thought about it, when I read that stat from your course, like I probably haven't finished, I haven't finished 13. I probably have only bought like, you know, probably less than 10, um, video courses in my life, but I don't prior to yours, I don't know if I'd watched every minute of any of them, although they're often quite long in uh, my defense. And it didn't mean that I didn't find the purchase worthwhile. Um, just, uh, you know, time is, uh, time is hard to come by. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So one other thing I wanted to catch up with you on, Noel, is I feel like, I mean, you haven't been writing as often as you mentioned due to your health issues and also uh, due to trying to get this course out. But I do feel like in the early days, you were writing a decent amount more about top level chess and uh, your focus has shifted a little bit to sort of chess improvement stuff. But I'm curious if if you still consider yourself a chess fan, if you're following the FIDE World Rapid and Blitz, if you have thoughts about uh, all of the drama that's happened in the past year, like uh, where are you in terms of uh, your perception of uh, professional chess right now? Yeah, I mean, you're right that I shifted more to focusing um, also on chess improvement now that was, you know, aimed at 2000 or below. Um, but I still love the game and I actually was uh, second in of uh, the chess team of Bayern Munich in this European Club Cup. So I was just, that was completely different from what I did from my course, right? I was helping players that were um, sometimes... Uh, clearly stronger than I was at my peak, uh, trying to find, you know, opening novelties, trying to uh, think about what the opponent might do. So that's also work I still enjoy. Um, and I also like to watch chess, uh, especially the World Rapid and Blitz um, yeah. in person. For me, maybe it was just because I played it once and I still have all these emotions attached to it for my, like, only world championship um for, you know, not youth world championships that I played. Um, but I just love it. It's just it's just amazing to see and, and yeah, it's, it's fun to watch. And uh, there was also quite some some funny incidents with people that didn't know the rules or try to, you know, get some advantage. I, it was it was just packed, uh, had everything, in my opinion. Yeah, and quite a performance by Magnus. I mean, amazing that he won both events, so... Uh, glad he got a triple crown since um since the third leg of the crown will, will no longer be his uh, come uh, the Nepo and uh, Ding match. And um, I don't recall you sharing any thoughts overall about the um, the Magnus and Hans Niemann scandal. Um, what did you think of of that story? Yeah, so in general, I try to hold myself a little bit back from all these things because I feel I have a lot to share in chess improvement and then there are other people that are more informed when it's more about this actual you know chess news or chess drama whatever you want to call it um, I think it's just overall a very unfortunate um, incident and I do believe that Magnus did not act uh, very very well uh, I think he could have done better but I also agree that uh, somebody 
with um, you know online cheating as Neiman apparently did and and maybe over the board cheating. I don't believe in the sinker field, but um, who knows what happened? If not, there's nothing that is proven. But I think there should be some more clear rules. And I also think that Chess.com didn't make an amazing um, you know, job of trying to basically hide that he cheated that much, apparently. And then suddenly when Magnus was there, now it was a drama that everything was just, yeah, I think all parts in the story are a little bit sad, but um, hard to to say for me what really happened. Because yeah, there well, are other people that studied the games, you know, that uh, look through all the games. I, I, yeah, I find it hard to find an opinion on it. Yeah, yeah, reasonable, measured take. And when you were competing professionally, how often were you concerned about cheating? OTB. I actually don't know how much I might get into trouble for saying this, but I I don't know if you heard recently there was a person apparently caught cheating in a tournament in Spain. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I've played against him. And let's say I wasn't exactly surprised um, <laughs> hearing that the person got caught. So, but that was my only incident. Okay. Well, that's, Honestly, that's good to hear because whenever I read these stories, you know, and obviously I'm reasonably plugged in for like a non-grandmaster, you hear, oh, there was widespread speculation. And I'm always like, well, I didn't hear that speculation, you know, Um, and it can be a bit frustrating. Um, So if, you know, obviously we can caveat this with like, this is just perception, you know, you didn't, you don't know anything for sure, but, but what, um, what made you a little um, concerned that something was amiss um, in your game. And for listeners, this is the story of uh, international master Stefan Docks. Um, for those of you who heard my year in review podcast with John Hartman um, two weeks prior to this episode, um, we discussed it a little bit. Uh, Peter Doggers from chess.com did a good write up. There may have been re- more recent developments. I don't believe there have. But anyway, the very short uh, cliff notes is that, uh, as I said, there had been widespread suspicion, apparently. There were some reports that maybe he was caught with a phone in the bathroom, but that's not confirmed. But the one thing that for sure happened in this tournament in Spain is they tried to search him with a metal detector on the way in, and he refused it, and as a result was kicked out of the tournament. But anyway, uh, bringing it back to your experience, what, what happened in your game, uh, No. So there were some um, rumors already before I played uh, him. Uh, I had a, a very strong friend that was Grandmaster already at the time. Um, so at the time I was, I think, lower rated than him. But uh, he had beaten a Grandmaster I know. And this Grandmaster never, and I don't want to name his name, but he never suspe- is never suspicious of anyone. And he said he was sure. So I was alerted. He had beat my friend in the tournament. I was weaker than me and I just made fun of him. Yeah, you just used the ex- excuse that there was something going on. But when I played him, um, he stood up nearly every time. It was in Gibraltar. And those who played in Gibraltar already, the, the playing hole, the, the, the playing hole where the, the top boards are, is on the first floor, I believe. And if you go upstairs, there are only rooms there. There's nothing else than rooms. And downstairs, you can go to smoke and find the other playing hole. And I saw my opponent 
three or four times walking upstairs during my game, which the only thing you can do there is go to your room and check an engine. And I informed my ar the arbiter as well. And, um, and when he came back usually to the board, he played very quickly and once played like a crazy move. And I wasn't expecting it at all. And it was in one second. I was like, that's impossible to find. And um, the arbiter was informed he was um, forced to sit down. Uh, he wasn't able to leave the board anymore for quite some time. And immediately he started, you know, blundering a minus five, a plus five advantage. Um, I still ended up losing the game, but it was, to me, it was very, very weird. And especially this, you know, walking somewhere where the tournament area finished and there are only rooms up there. I just couldn't buy it that you would forget that you have to smoke downstairs and not upstairs for like the fifth time you play the same tournament in the seventh round or something like that. So wow. that was what was uh, suspicious. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing it. It's it's nice to to get concrete details about like uh, what often is just, um, you know, pretty vague um and it's funny because as again as i discussed with john hartman you know there's this big fear of air quotes smart cheating um and what you describe if it is cheating which we don't know for sure to be clear but it's not so sophisticated you know it's not like you know it doesn't sound like some you know it, there's no anal beads like there's no like it, it's it's what you might expect so, so absolutely yeah, it's, uh, so i think like Again, I'm not sure. I'm just, you know, I was suspicious and I might also recall things badly because it's I think 2013 it happened. So it's a long wow. time ago. So there was this this outcry about him before before our game happened. There was mm -hmm. already once a cheating allegation. There, there were articles written about it and then they didn't declare him guilty. But there were some suspicions already and some articles out already. So it was like natural that I would think a little bit more during that game. Let's let's put it that way. Um, but yeah, if if anything happened, it wasn't sophisticated at all. Like it okay. was just the most basic form of getting some help during a game against a weaker player that doesn't really count much. So it, it wasn't. Yeah, you play Magnus and. And you're supposed to have anal beats or whatever. So, right. so, so it was complete opposite of that, I would say. Okay. And the one crazy move you described, the unexpected move, did you check that with an engine? Subsequently? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. Still, still today, I, I when I saw the reports, I went back mm. to check my game. I think it's not in the database, but I have it myself. And still today's engines are happy about his move, but... Um, I could have sacrificed the rook and his king would have, you know, ended up on f6 or whatever. And and he would have had to forcefully sacrifice back the queen. And then we get some weird ending, which the engine says is slightly better for me, but it's holdable for him. So it's like, I mean, he, either you're the biggest genius or something was kind of weird there because that wasn't a move I would ever. Basically, he played d5 in a Sicilian and I took the pawn and he just made another move. And I mm -hmm. could take on e6 and on f7 would check, and he would survive somehow. But yeah, that that was that that was quite quite weird. Okay. Well, again, thanks for thanks for, for sharing that. One thing I wanted to follow up on in my conversation with John is, you know, we had mentioned that Ken Regan's algorithms, uh, international master, of course, and the only uh, 
Fide um, approved uh, cheat detector, his algorithms didn't pick something up with uh, Stefan Docs. And I've just seen some some people online just casting aspersions saying like his algorithms, like clearly they, they're not stringent enough. And when I interviewed my most recent interview with Dr. Regan, uh, he defended them. He said that uh, they would have caught uh which other cheating oh the the french olympiad that they would have flagged uh um i'm drawing a blank um on the grandmaster but when the french team uh cheated that they would have caught that but yeah thank you feller yeah um but i just want to acknowledge the possibility like i'm not here to uh blindly defend dr regan obviously he's a, a brilliant guy and uh making a good faith effort but it is possible that that his his um algorithm is not stringent enough, and there are certainly uh, a fair number of grandmasters who have that opinion. Um, I don't know how if you have anything to say about this, but I just wanted to. I just want to be fair, you know. No, I mean I, I don't want to take anything away from his work, but I do believe that if someone was to be cheating smartly, you have no chance to seeing that with an algorithm. Like you, you can you can work on that algorithm forever. I I do not believe like. I think what people really don't understand is I was, you know, 2588 at my highest point. If I get one move a game that I can just choose the engine line, I'm probably 2750. Right. Like it's just such a huge difference. And if you just tell me one move a game that is important, I'm 2650. You don't even need to tell me the move. Like so few Intel makes such a huge difference that I think it's extremely hard to spot it just by looking at numbers. Because, yeah, it's just some moves make a huge difference, but you don't even know what exact intel one has to have. Um, Just knowing the piece is enough, right? So maybe you only make the second best move, but that was because you knew the piece and you actually failed to spot the right square, but (laughs) but at least you made the second best. So there are so many ways to get a little advantage. I think if the person cheating is strong already as a player and sophisticated, it's extremely tough. Yeah. Yeah. It's... Yeah, and again, Dr. Regan discussed this and defended his algorithm's ability to pick this up. But uh, you you certainly raise raise valid questions in my mind, and uh, yeah, it's it's hard to know. So, where does that leave us in terms of big open tournaments? I mean, is there just always going to have to be an, an element of trust, or can there be sufficient security measures to feel comfortable? Like, would you feel comfortable playing? Say someone, say there was like a tournament where you had to put up an uncomfortable amount of money, but you're going to be the strongest player. Um, would you feel comfortable playing in such a tournament? Would you feel like it can be legitimate? Like, by like, harken back to like Millionaire Chess that uh, Maurice Ashley was running some years ago. I think for the type of tournaments of Millionaire Chess, I think it will be quite tough, right? Because mm-hmm. we you have prizes for people that don't have much to lose. I think for now, really the combination, you have to be very strong already and to be very sophisticated and invest a lot in your cheating method. So I think this prevents a little bit having, I would say a grandmaster that wouldn't be world-class being suddenly world-class. I think it's extremely hard. Like going back to the Neiman case, what I would nearly say with absolute certainty is that since delegations are there, he is 100% clean. There's, I cannot find a possibility 
that he would still continue doing it and not being caught, right? So mm-hmm. that means that this this is a slight possibility, but when you start giving out extremely high prices to uh, lower rated people that maybe aren't known in the chess scene, they don't earn their money in the chess scene, they can just try to make some money and then cash out and go away. I think then it starts to be difficult because yeah, then you can really, really do some uh, some damage to to other people, and actually, that's something um, I usually think about. Also, about my community, you know, how could I maybe make tournaments and and give away some prizes? Or for now, I I didn't do any tournament yet because it's just the possibility of cheating online, especially, is just so high, right? When when you don't have uh, you know big streamers involved or big people that have something to lose, it just gets so much harder. Um, to control it so that's an open point for sure yeah uh very insightful kind of a kind of a downer but uh i mean i will say like the money in for example the tournament in spain i i believe the prize was like a couple thousand dollars like so with with stuff like that at least the incentives aren't super strong i mean you're still going to run into cheaters and of course someone whether it was Hans Niemann or someone in the future, someone might try to make it to the elite as a cheater. But but then when they get there, if the requirements are more stringent, they're not going to be able to maintain the level. Um, but anyway, yeah. And just to for, for listeners who aren't familiar with Millionaire Chess, basically, uh, this was when poker was really booming. Maurice Ashley and a collaborator um, founded these tournaments that were kind of more poker style because the the entry fee i believe was like a thousand dollars and the the class prize the prize for say under two thousand might be like forty thousand dollars or something which um you know the world open the prizes here in the u.s can get pretty big but that was even bigger and obviously the bigger the prize the the more you have to worry about but at least at the professional level um i'm i think it's a mostly solvable problem but it is um it is an issue. I, th- I, th- I think there's going to be some trust involved at the amateur level, even the amateur grandmaster level. Absolutely. And But I just want to say for everybody out there, not that, you know, we're all like, okay, we just stopped playing OTB chess. It's just anyway right. rigged or whatever. I think the best way to approach this is really to try to play your own chess and, and that's it, right? To not focus on these things too much. Once you sign up for a tournament, just try to play the best move possible um, in the case somebody would cheat against you, you know, you, anyway, there's very little to do. Um, and you can see it as a training opportunity. I would really see it that way. It shouldn't happen too often. Um, you might have one out of a hundred games or something like this, that might, something might be going on. It's just not worth it spending too much mental energy, thinking every time about your opponent when he has a pen that looks a bit different, if there is a camera inside or or whatever, right? So just try to free yourself from it when you sign up to a tournament because it's about having fun and improving yourself and and playing better chess than you played the day before. And actually for that, it doesn't really matter too much if your opponent is, you know, maybe doing something wrong or not. Yeah, good. Yeah, really good point. Um, and at some point, you know, 
uh, like when I when I played poker professionally, I played on some of the sites that turned out like I played with air quotes super users. Uh, you know the the bot the people who had access to whole cards and were stealing money. And my attitude at the time, because you you did hear rumors, was like if you're making if I'm making money, who cares? You know, like mm-hmm. until it gets to a point where I'm I can't get anything from it, then it's a concern. And as you say, it's similar in chess where like the overall experience is still going to be positive and you can, I mean, obviously there is smart cheating, but at the amateur level, like uh, smart cheating becomes increasingly pointless. And especially if it's not like a big money tournament. Um, So I do think that, as you say, it's going to be the extreme minority if it does happen. So um, like, like Noel said, don't, don't give up on, on tournaments yet. Um, all right, no, I think I just have uh, one more question for you, which is, I mean, you've, you finally put this big project behind you. Actually, I might have two. Um, and so uh, what, what's next? Do you have another project in mind or going to uh, cool your heels a little bit? Yeah, I have like my um, series of courses outlined that I would like to, to do. Um, I also, the more, you know, you have contact with people, you, you understand what is missing maybe in the chess world. I'm really trying not to... Um, you know, just create something that exists already. I would say that the course is quite, you know, quite unique in a way um, that you you can just go to any chess website and just buy a similar course. Um, so I have some ideas of what things I would want to do, but for the moment, I think the next one, two months, for sure, I will take, you know, take it uh, a little slower um, and try to write some more articles, getting back into, you know, writing shape, doing things uh, for people that just subscribe to my newsletter, um, sending them out as I did for like one and a half years now, every Friday, this newsletter um, and and seeing what I can do with the course, how I can improve it just that it stays up to date. And then at some point, maybe March, April, I will start thinking about a second course and, and seeing if I can be quicker than 14 months or something like this next time. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, glad to hear that you'll get back to writing. Your posts are so insightful and, of course, free. So any listeners who are not subbed to Next Level Chess, be, f- be sure to check it out. And listen, while you're at it, subscribe to the Perpetual Chess Link Fest, uh, my free compilation of uh, uh, quality chess blogs such as Knowles and Chess News. Uh, and last question for real, Noel, is you alluded to your health being a bit better, but but what's the overall um situation for you for for listeners not familiar with Noel's backstory uh, he had a serious brain injury that has inhibited his ability to to concentrate and to work for hours and actually was a major contributor to his decision to um, retire from professional chess as we discussed in our last interview so just want to get an update on on how your health is Noel. well I mean finally I have extremely good doctors and uh, physiotherapists I'm so grateful to have them and we are you know I would say close to a solution where I can get back to 100%, um, not having to live with any problems anymore. I still have occasional um, or mostly daily concentration problems. I just don't have them as often as I used to have them. I still have some uh, muscular problems in my neck and back area where I have some pain, but it's really getting much better. I mean, if you think that five years, five, yeah, five and a half years ago, basically couldn't talk five minutes to a friend without uh, wanting to go back to bed. Um, I've come a long way and, and it's just great to see people helping me 
in a way that yeah i can i hope at the end of the year be uh, 100% back to full health again wow that is great to hear uh that, that's really good news i'm so glad that that you, things are looking up yeah i mean yeah as i said very grateful for all the people because it's a lot of people that have tried to to fix me so to speak and uh it seems that now i've i've like uh, three key persons i see every week that uh, make me uh old noel again <laughs> <laughs> Glad to hear it. Okay, and uh, so listeners should subscribe to your blog, uh, follow you on Twitter, um, and of course check out your course if they are interested. Again, uh, no, I'll link to it in the show description. But it's called Next Level Training: Conquer the Chess Information Chaos. Anything else, listeners should any other uh, tasks for listeners to complete in order to keep up with you? No, I mean you can reach out to me. Uh, just uh, hit me a mail if you have questions about the course, if you're not sure if that's for you, if you have questions about our conversation. You know, I, I love to stay in contact. The more, you know, feedback I get from chess improvers, the better content I can create, be it courses or free material on the blog. So, yeah, just love hearing from you guys. Excellent. So I'll put the email address in the show notes as well. And Noel, great to catch up. And again, glad to hear that you're feeling better. And congrats on uh, on completing the first course, even if it took a little longer than you planned. Thank you so much, Ben. And I hope uh, with what I said on the cheating, I'm not getting my ass kicked. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so too. I didn't have. If it happens, it will, I had nothing to do with it. It wasn't. It wasn't me. <laughs> I'll contact my lawyers already now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. All right. Take care and good luck with that. <laughs> Thanks to everyone who helps make Perpetual Chess possible. Big shout out to my producer, Matthew Passy. I'd also like to thank the Blue Wire Podcast Network, with whom we are proud to be affiliated. Be sure to follow us on social media, Beneficial1 on Twitter, at Perpetual Chess on Instagram, and or you can join the Perpetual Chess Facebook group. You can email me, ben at perpetualchesspod.com. And of course, last but not least, I'd like to give major thanks to the Perpetual Chess Patreon and PayPal supporters. Those who choose to join that community based on their level of support can do things like submit questions for guests of the show, have access to live Zoom Q&A lectures with grandmasters who often have appeared on the show, going over chess games, answering questions, stuff like that. And you can even get access to ad-free perpetual chess if that's your preference. So, but most of all, thanks to everyone for listening and we will catch you all on the... Social Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.